The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I've got uh, a jack of all trades, a renaissance man, Warren Bobro, who is the author of many a books, uh, including Whiskey Cocktails and a book on cannabis cocktails, Cannabis Cocktails, Mocktails, and Tonics. He's also the CEO of Klaus Apothecare, and also a writer for Forbes. Say hi. Warren, would you be kind enough to introduce yourself, tell the folks a little more about yourself? Hey, my, my name is Warren Bobro, and I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Not nine years ago, I was resting my hat in the corporate world, trying to be someone that I was never going to be and shouldn't have been in the first place. But life has a funny way of uh, throwing you things that are supposed to teach you certain lessons. And mine was that I was doing the wrong thing. Uh, I didn't actually be, you know, write any words before May of 2009 when I lost my corporate job. It was an offshore exercise. And uh, I'm glad that, it, that life had its own way of kind of pushing me forward and figuring out what I wanted to become. But I really didn't know that I wanted to be a writer. And it took uh, some extracurricular activities, such as going back to school and uh, learning to, uh, to admit that I didn't have the skills that were necessary to go forward in life without them. So uh, I, I learned it the, you know, the hard way and I worked for free for a long time and uh, that isn't the way any longer. So anyway. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm going to, since I, we're going to talk a lot about books today and it's funny. I don't know if you've read my book, the cannabis business book, but I kick it off with, I'm the luckiest guy alive. So I, it's, I'm wondering who, who is it? Am I the luckiest guy alive? Or are you the luckiest guy alive? Or are we both super lucky because we're doing what we love in cannabis? I think when you do it when you're passionate about something and you're able to uh, follow your dreams I you know it's, it hasn't been easy it's not a uh, you know working in weed seems for some people is a big money maker for me it's not um, but I like helping other people find their their passion and lend my assistance where it's necessary and where it's it's wanted sometimes when it's not wanted um, but I've been you know working on another project at, at this point you know late game in my life at 59 and I'm really excited about it so uh it, and it has something to do with weed so and, and possibly it'll make money maybe <laughs> nice Warren I wanted to ask you to really quickly show us your book this is my uh my fourth book of six it's cannabis cocktails mocktails and tonics uh, it is a, uh, it's sort of a deep dive into the crazy art of infusing THC into craft spirits and then mixing tasty little cocktails with them. I'm uh, best known as the uh, Cocktail Whisperer. I've written uh, six books on mixology of my own. I have a, my first book is called Apothecary Cocktails. Here it is in French. Um, so we have that. Uh, of course, we have the, I think this is my second book, Whiskey Cocktails. I have a third book, Bitters and Shrubs Syrup Cocktails, which isn't here right this second. And I have uh, Cannabis Cocktails, my fourth. Uh, Craft Cocktail Compendium is the fifth. The French one is the sixth. So there you have it. Amazing. Fantastic. Warren, how or why did you decide to enter the cannabis industry? I couldn't wait for you to ask me that one um, because I probably, uh, you know, because I'm crazy. Uh, the cannabis industry, you know, even when I worked at, as in the wine industry and even when I worked in the rum industry, I was always known as someone who smoked weed. Uh, I've smoked cannabis since I was 12 years old. As I said, I was 59. I'm 59. Um, it's part of 
the person that I am. I mean, when did I not smoke? <laughs> so why did I get into the business? I, I, I think I got into the business because it was an extension of the illegal side of the business, which we're really not supposed to talk about. But uh, I always made my friends happy. <laughs> okay, awesome. And then I'm curious to hear a little more about the intersection of alcohol and cannabis and how you brought your existing skills and passions into the cannabis world. So, and for you, I, I see that as both with cocktails and mixology and also with writing. So tell me a little about how you fuse those two or three things and, and, and how that works. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And it comes from uh, being in New York City and uh, spending a little time in the care of the New York City Police Department. So I wanted to write something that uh, was not antagonistic, not like smoking a joint in the street, which will certainly get you arrested, I know. Um, and it's not a pleasant journey and certainly not a trip that I recommend out to uh, Rikers Island when you're white. It's so true. Um, because many of the people that helped me get forward in my own life and my own experience, I had to find out on the other side of the gray bar hotel, as they call it. And each of these individuals came up to me the moment I got in there and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I got caught smoking a joint. And they said, don't worry, you'll be okay. You'll be out in 48 hours. But it was 48 hours that changed the path of my entire life. And when I decided that I wanted to write the book, uh, Cannabis Cocktails, it actually was around the time that I wanted to write the book, uh, Apothecary Cocktails, because the only ingredient that my publisher wouldn't let me include in the book was cannabis. Um, cannabis had many purposes in the early apothecary. One of the purposes was for healing. They weren't really quite sure how it heals, like today. They don't really know how it heals or why it heals or what it does. It happens to do something. So it was included back in the 1850s here in the United States in the early apothecary. And I was actually down in New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail back in, uh, I don't know, 2014. And I, uh, was doing a book signing on bitters and shrub syrup cocktails at the pharmacy museum on Royal Street. And coincidentally, at the same time that I had my book signing, they were doing an event on cannabis in the early apothecary. And I knew at that very moment, it became crystalline in my mind exactly what I was going to write my next book on. And that was cannabis in the early apothecary, but in the format of myself being a, a you know master mixologist, I was going to include cannabis in mixology, change the world, and it it has. Amazing! I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that serendipitous moment that often takes place on the hero's journey, where everything just clicks and it all makes sense. Oh, it did, did it all make sense? No, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. No, I had to learn what, what I was doing. And I, I tested all the recipes on myself and it wasn't the easiest uh, you know, education because I only had 30 days to write the book. See, my publisher handles things a little differently. You have 160,000 words that are assigned to you and you have 30 days to write them. It's not like you can go out on a book journey and try to create something out of nothing by your you know, moving around the country talking to people. No, it's not like that. You have to really get down to the brass tacks and that's to write a book, you have to write at least a thousand words, 2000 words a day, including all the recipes and making sure that they test, testing it on myself. I knew what the basic science was because I created it, but I had to figure it out the hard way. And it was uh, not an easy venture. I will, wow. I will assure you as an old stoner, I'll tell you, it was not easy. There were some couch block journeys. <laughs> that's, my, that sounds... My, my wife's saying, what's the matter with you? <laughs> You're asleep at three o'clock. What's the... <laughs> I'm just working on the book, honey. <laughs> wow, that is quite the undertaking to write 160,000 words in 30 days 
Uh, plus the recipes. Oh my goodness. And make sure that it's cohesive, that I can turn it over to the next line, you know, in the, in the editorial phase and make sure that they don't, you know, have to spend too much time on the phone with me because the person who I use and who is incredibly uh, important to me is in Ireland and she's five hours ahead. And if I'm going to ask for her help in the editing process, I have to be either up at three in the morning because she's doing it before work or I have to do it, you know, in the afternoon or, or whenever she has it. And it was, it was tough. It was, it was, you know, writing any book is difficult. It's not an easy, you know, adventure, but mm-hmm. uh, they can kill at any time. And I still, you know, you know, even though cannabis cocktails is on like eighth or ninth printing, still they could kill it at any time, at any time. All my other books are, are pretty much killed except for the uh, craft cocktail compendium. So Warren, let me ask you for the folks who haven't picked up cannabis cocktails, mocktails, and tonics yet, which they can do on Amazon.com. I, I'm wondering indie bookstore, you know, indie bookstores in your local town. It's really important, small business. We're all about indie books. I mean, Amazon's great, but they, you know, they drive a hard bargain. Your indie bookstore is much better use of your money. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, thank you for that. No need to apologize. You're right. I, I was going to ask you for the folks who might be listening who are are not master mixologists and maybe want to experiment with with cannabis and alcohol. You know, uh, a potentially explosive combination. I, I wonder if you have any. You know, if you can offer like a a very brief lesson on the basics, or alternatively, you know, clear up a common misconception that folks may have about the combination of cannabis and alcohol. Mixing cannabis with alcohol is a lot like eating Thai food for the first time. You probably don't want to go to a Thai restaurant and order it Thai spicy the first time out. That's why my book is somewhat flawed because the, uh, the recipes are strong. And it was, I wrote the book not for the recreational user, but I wrote it for the medicinal user of which I am. I am a, uh, I'm a patient. I have glaucoma. I take cannabis to reduce my eye pressure. The drinks are strong. I w- appeared on Viceland Live and destroyed them on live television. You can't make that stuff up. Um, it's, uh, to, to them, it was somewhat horrifying. To me, it was exactly what they asked for. I do events all over the United States. I, and in fact, I've done them around the world. And I will tell you that uh, you get what you pay for. And if you want to get destroyed, I'm your man. Uh, so <laughs> as I said, you know, you don't have to take the entire cocktail as one drink. You can break it up into five drinks and it's still going to be pretty potent. Each of the drinks are about 250 milligrams. So they, they were, you know, yeah, they, they were strong. But I was, you know, I was using and. The, the, the whole thing was, you know, back in the day, it, you know, when I wrote the book, there wasn't a great supply of uh, diversity of, of strains. It's whatever you could find pretty much. The, uh, the medical cannabis was pretty, uh, you know, rudimentary, if you will. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I may not have been able to get the, the best Californian or the best Arizona or the best Colorado or the best Michigan for that matter, because they just didn't exist in New Jersey. So uh, you know, I was limited, and the uh, so the strengths were high, and uh, it, they were they're not uh, they're not drinks for a neophyte, although they're very easy to produce. I would say if I was to write the book over, I would use a little less cannabis. In a bottle, a 750 ml bottle of uh, craft spirits, any given craft spirits, I I was recommending using an entire ounce. I would say use a quarter ounce in the entire bottle. That's all you need. You could always add more, like Thai food. Start out slow, one star, not five star, but same thing. That's hilarious about the, the Vice crew. Um, yeah, and just for, for reference for the folks who may be listening, you know, 250 milligrams of THC, you know, for for the... We're talking about microdosing, five milligrams, and in a drink, you know, of a 12 ounce beverage and has five milligrams in it. I mean, that's uh, a 250 milligram drink may not be exactly what the doctor ordered. No, exactly. And, and if you're, if you 
do happen to be a neophyte, you know, it's likely that even 2.5 milligrams will give you an effect or a buzz and five will have you really meeting and understanding cannabis. So 250 is really, you know, a, a heroic. Like, like it's irresponsible, I admit it. But I'm a <laughs> guy, I can say, you know, I'm irresponsible. <laughs> there was, back in the day, back when I wrote the book, and I was getting a lot of reviews, and I and many of them were not so kind reviews, and, and those reviews were probably accurate in their own way, because the, the drinks are strong. And, and, I, and as I said, I, I didn't write the book for a recreational audience, I wrote it for a medicinal audience. So, the, so you have to look at the, at the mental capacity of those who are using it for, for medicine and the ones who just want to get messed up. If you want to get messed up, it's the perfect book for you. If you don't want to get messed up and you want to just work on those things that bother you, it's the perfect book for you. <laughs> Warren, I want to ask you along these lines, you, you work on a couple of different things. I want to get into a few of them. I know you have a new product coming out in California soon. I would love to hear a little more about that. I have a passion. And one of the things that I was able to do well in life before I became a banker for 20 years was I was a trained chef and a saucier. And I love putting together flavors and making drinks, and if that be the case, because I have created quite a few of them, but also uh, creating flavors from my saucier background. And so it's a natural for me to want to test the boundaries of flavor. And unfortunately, the flavor of the moment is seltzer. My drink is not another seltzer. It's a libation. It's what we call an RTD or a ready to drink. It's uh, got 10 milligrams of live resin in it in the strain of mango train wreck. Ooh. Uh, nanotechnology. So it just needs a tiny hint of bubble to get the stuff frothy. And that happens when you open up the top. The can is eight and three quarter ounces. So, you, you know, it, it, it ha packs a little kick to it. Um, it's under the name Klaus Apothecare, which is my 1860s or 1850s German drinking gnome, who's traveled around the world with me. So he's a real thing. And I was just over in Germany in October, uh, teaching at the Berlin Bar Convent, and uh, he came with me, but he's also been to Russia, he's been to all the rum events around the world, and uh, so he's a real thing, and uh, he decided that he didn't want to drink quite so much, and I quit drinking completely, except for uh, wine and beer, and uh, we're much healthier because of it, and he is now the exemplification of my craft in a THC-infused beverage, or a libation, as I would call it. And I use some beautiful ingredients uh, with individuals here and gone. And I pay homage to the ones who are gone in a liquid re uh, reference. And that would be uh, my late friend, Gary Regan, Gaz Regan with his number six orange bitters. And my late friend, Joe Fee, I'm using his lemon bitters in the, uh, in the first mocktail, if you will. And uh, that's also with Pickett's ginger beer and uh, Vergere Boiron uh, lime juice from France. And uh, just a touch of, of, of fizz to get things lively. And that's it. And that's the first one. Then we have a couple more drinks that we're working on still. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun. My mouth is suddenly watering. I, <laughs> I feel like I, I got secondhand cotton mouth just uh, hearing about that and wanting to try that. Where is that going to be available? Southern California, of course, because that's where the money is. Uh, you know, people who have good taste, we want to attract their, you know, their abilities and their tasting abilities. So I want to get it up to San Francisco, of course, because I have nice relationships with, uh, with different, uh, what do they call them, dispensaries up there. You know, it's so funny when, uh, when, when I consider, you know, living here in New Jersey where everything is, is so stigmatized that I, when I walk outside to smoke a joint in the street, really in the back of my mind, I'm looking over my shoulder to make sure I don't get arrested. Even though I have a card here in New Jersey, still in my brain, it's illegal and it's stigmatized. I go out to California and it's like, oh, which dispensary are we going to go to today? <laughs> it's so 
different. It's so profound and it's not going to go away anytime soon. That's why the, uh, the sale of the beverage will be in places like Malibu, San Diego, I, you know, I, I Beverly Hills, <laughs> why not? You know, uh, West LA, you know, the, the places where the money is. And then they have me with my personality and, uh, and mixing drinks live and direct. And, you know, we'll see what, what, what's permitted with COVID. I mean, but I, part of, of being the, you know, in charge of the company and the CEO is to get in front of people in whatever manner I can do. And I, I may be able to do it virtually from New Jersey, but really to be effective in this market is to be, to be a friend and to be someone that, uh, that's a real face and bring class along. What are some of the differences that you've observed as far as culture between the alcohol world and the cannabis world? Oh my God, the alcohol world, I'm glad not to be working with drunks. <laughs> I worked with drunks for a long time. And uh, you know, there's, there's two different types of drunks. There's functional drunks and there's dysfunctional drunks. Unfortunately, 90% of the people I worked with in the liquor business are dysfunctional drunks. Even though they're out there making money and being successful or doing whatever they're doing, it's very, very difficult to keep that going for a long period of time. So, so that, that was one of the things. And that's one of the things that I really don't miss. I don't miss going down to New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail, where I would be the last week of July every year for 10 years and sweating my ass off and being around people who are in one state of intoxication or another, having been drinking from the moment that they got there to the moment that they left without sleeping, with hangover and alcohol coming over everyone's breath. I don't miss that. I don't miss that. I don't miss the 55 pounds that I lost by not drinking anymore, by not drinking distilled spirits. I don't miss that at all. I don't miss the hangovers. I haven't had a hangover in years. I don't want to tell you. I mean, it's like, it, I feel great. I feel great for a 59 year old guy. And I feel even better sharing that you don't need to drink distilled spirits. Do you ever look at a bottle of booze and see a, la a label of ingredients? Do you know how much sugar they add to that? Do you know why Hennessy is so popular in the inner city? It's because they add two ounces of sugar to every bottle. It's just, your teeth are rotting out of your head on, in every single drink. Is that good? Is that bad? It's permitted. There's a, uh, you know, there's a famous uh, owner of a cognac company who will remain nameless. He's also in the rum business. And I asked, why do they add so much, so much sugar to their rum? And they said, because it's permitted. <laughs> who permits it? It's poison. It's killing you. People will get diabetes for one reason, because they take too much sugar. And it's hereditary, but they take too much sugar. And, and in, in distilled spirits, it's all about the sugar. Wow. So I really don't, I'm not known for making sweet drinks because I don't make sweet drinks and my beverages that are coming out are not sweet drinks. If anything, they're tangy. They've got, you know, a touch of rice wine vinegar. They, they have a little bit of apple cider vinegar. They take the, your palate to another place without sugar. So I feel very strongly about that. And I'm kind of a militant as far as that's concerned, especially in the rum business where 99% of the rums on the market, they add sugar to or caramel coloring to approximate age. I mean, what's that all about? That's like uh, mezcal with a worm in it. No one in Mexico ate the worm. It was something created on Madison Avenue. And the same thing with dark rum. You have a bottle of light rum on the shelf and you have a bottle of dark rum on the shelf. The light rum is $50, the dark rum is 75. Which one is the older rum? Guess what? They're both the same age. And the dark rum has more sugar added and it has caramel. So how do you know? You don't, because there's no label of, of, uh, of ingredients. Unlike in cannabis, I mean, when you're dealing with legal cannabis, you know what's in it. You've seen the, you know, you see the, the test results as long as the test results are accurate. You know that, that you hope that they are. But in food, you don't see anything. You have no, absolutely no idea what's in there. It could be anything. Interesting to hear you say all that because my one of my fears and one of the things I'm observing is you know, more and more of the new states that are coming on board with adult use cannabis are trying to model things after how alcohol is being regulated. And I fear that in New York, we're going to see an adult use cannabis system that's basically regulated by the same folks that are regulating alcohol. 
And well, that's going every place else. I mean, what makes New York so special? Right. But they're not. I mean, right. really. I mean, every place else is re- in in Washington State. It's regulated by the out al- by the Alcohol Commission. Uh, in Las Vegas, I believe it's the same thing by the Alcohol Commission. I mean, they. If you didn't trust them then, you're not going to trust them now. They're not going to change. It's all political. I mean, it's all an appointee basis, the alcohol commissions. And, it, and whoever is the, the, the party in favor is the one who controls the, the appointments. And that's just a fact of life. I mean, it's, it's civics, basic civics. You look at, at who's running alcohol, you find out who's running weed. That's it. it in legal places. In illegal places, you know, you, you look to people like myself who grew up in incredibly affluent surroundings and many of, of the boys and girls, I would say, of, of my contemporaries, you could never talk about what their parents did because they didn't know what their parents did. But, you know, it wasn't legal. So. <laughs> Sopranos, man. It's all real. They're, these are real people. You know, they had kids. They grew up with me. <laughs> Amazing. Warren, I want to ask you about your writing. And in particular, you are you, you cover a, a variety of cannabis topics for Forbes. And one thing I love that you do is interview people and ask them five questions and share some of their stories. How do you decide what to write about? How do you figure out, I'm going to ask these questions or, you know, I, I just want to hear a little about that. Well, I'm, I'm insanely curious about people. I, uh, I really like uh, learning other people's stories because it creates a, a universal story. And uh, if anything, I like writing about those who don't have what some have. And I, I, I was talking to someone today about that, how I changed, I like to change people's lives in a, in a very succinct way. I've been writing about some young people out in the West Coast some young people of color out in the West Coast who have not been given the shade, the fair share that they feel like they deserve. And I believe that they did not deserve. They needed to, to really get, have a voice and they were never going to get it. And so when I met them, I said, I have to get your work out there. What you do is so important for the, for, for yourself and for everyone else has to be, made public. And I wrote about them. And this one guy went from like two dispensaries to 600. His life has changed. Absolutely. And that's why I do it. Because it's not for all the famous CEOs. It's not for all the the big name people. It's not for all the payola PR money that tries to filter down my way because I don't take pay for play. I'm not interested in talking to those who have, as I said, they're going to, I'm going to write about them anyway. But I want to learn about the growers. I want to learn about the mom and pops. I've been writing these little bits for uh, the Flocana people, and I know it's you know it's a big mega corporation, but really their focus is on terroir. Their focus is on small producer and mom and pop, and uh, you know legacy grows, and that's what I'm trying to grow you know grow in my writing. I want I want to develop a, a word of authenticity because that's the weed that I'm smoking. I'm not smoking the big name shit. I'm smoking the stuff that, uh, you know, okay, well, Brothers Grimm is big enough, but you know, it's still, I mean, who gets that? No one. So that means something to me and I want to write their stories. I want to tell their stories. I want to be uh, inclusive rather than exclusive. And, and it's funny, I got an email the other day. They were saying like, I had to go out and get PR to get them to find out who you are and get your email address. And I was like, man, you know, you, Join LinkedIn. You, know, you see my email address right up there. You know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not such a mystery. I live a pretty public life. You know, it's, you take a look at my Instagram. I think there's probably something on there. You can go to cocktailwhisperer.com and, and get in touch with me. I mean, if you want me to write an article, pitch me. But I don't write about CBD. We're not doing any hemp stories. There are no beauty products anymore. I kind of fell down that ladder because I was curious and then I couldn't figure out, you know, what was what. <laughs> Snake oil is what. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, don't open up that can of worms here. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you talked about the alcohol labels, you know, like those CBD products are, most true. CBD products are just as, um, what's the opposite of transparent? Yeah. Well, it's opaque. 
Yes, there you go. Light goes through, but not well. <laughs> uh, you know, and I have a personal experience with that stuff, and I have to, I have to be, you know, completely forthright with it. My grandfather made patent pharmaceuticals, and he was approached by the FDA and the FTC back in the 1960s for making snake oil, and his most famous, famous product which really created a, uh, a national, if not an international following for him and made him a, a successful man, was for a product called Geritol. And it was uh, for something that no one had, and that was iron poor blood. I mean, men don't get it, and it's like one-tenth of one base, you know, basis point of all the women in, in the United States can get iron poor and anemia, but it doesn't exist. And they were selling it as a way of having vim and vigor come back into your step and make you into some, something that, uh, you know, two tablespoons of this 50% alcohol uh, serum is gonna make you uh, a bright and chipper young man again. Um, the FDA and the FTC had a real problem with that and uh, they ceased him the ability of making, you know, manufacturing the product in the manner that it was because it didn't have that little FDA Disclaimer statement, this drug is not meant to heal or cure any known ailment. CBD, to a certain extent, does not have to do that either. It's an unregulated vitamin. I mean, it has no, no efficacy as, well, as anything. And, uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of fighting about what CBD actually is. But what I see it as is no more than, than, than rope on a sailboat. You know, it's hemp. <laughs> you know, the world was discovered because of hemp. We know this. If the world wasn't discovered because of hemp, the world would have never been discovered be until you know synthetic you know sales and synthetic rope came out because hemp was the way that they you know took the sales up and down. That's the only way you didn't row across the Atlantic at that time. So uh, so hemp was really important, and we also you know look back in the rum business. We look back at, and see what was in those barrels. They were bringing tobacco back and forth. But I think they were also bringing hemp back and forth. And of course, the sailors weren't just smoking tobacco. They were smoking weed. Uh, what else are you going to do on those long voyages across the ocean? So they had a daily rum tot, which was about 16 ounces. But, and it was usually highly overproof in the beginning. And then they made grogs by adding lime to it. Hence, they were known as limeys. So, oh, wow. Nice. Warren, I want to ask you, what is your highest power? Oh my God, my highest power, uh, trying to downplay all the success, but it's not, it, it's really not success monetarily, it's success right here. So that's my highest power. Awesome, cool. Well, before we shift into the coaching segment, I wanted to ask you if there's anything we didn't cover that you wanted to mention or, or chat about briefly before we shift gears. I want to know why every time I'm in New York City, we haven't had a chance to stash together. <laughs> oh, that's a, there's an easy solution for that problem. That that's we can take care of that. I'm curious, especially after I saw that bag on your desk. I'm I'm curious to try that. Uh, that looks that, that looked quite nice. That big nug I saw, man. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, they call that for review. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, well, let's shift gears into the coaching portion. I'm gonna put my, my coaching hat on and ask you, Warren, what is your biggest challenge right now or business challenge, or it doesn't have to be a business challenge, but yeah. Uh, my biggest challenge right now is starting a company and, uh, and coming to the realization that since I'm on the East Coast and the companies on the West Coast, how am I going to learn how to manage my time and who is going to manage my time to be effective and to be able to be efficient? I mean, to, uh, running a company is only as good as the people you have working with you. And we're still developing a business plan to see what that would entail. And so that's my, my biggest concern right now is what the company looks like and how, how we're able to establish, you know, we have a product, we know who's going to be making it, we know what the label looks like, we know what the cans are, we know how strong it's going to be, we know that uh, it's going to be trademarked. There's a lot of things that we know about, but there's a lot of things, the intangibles that we don't know about. 
And those are the things that keep me up at night, even though I have no trouble sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a cannabis cocktail that'll put you right to bed. <laughs> uh, it's called, uh, it's called, I, I usually keep an indica around just for the, uh, the end of the night. Uh, woven into maybe some peanut butter and then in a cup of tea, just float that over the top and sip easy. Let me ask you, because I'm hearing that it's, you know, starting this company, there's a lot of intangibles that you you feel like you, you still haven't figured out. I'm wondering what is the biggest piece of the puzzle that that you're still wondering about or what's the, you know, what's the biggest challenge right now? Uh, having a, having a, a timeline like project management to be able to uh, say on such and such date we're going to accomplish this and then on the next date we're going to have to accomplish that and then have certain benchmarks you know they call it project management and I uh, I'm not creative project management I know there are people who are good at project management but I'd like to be able to see some sort of timeline anyway and coaxing the people that I work with who are working on multiple levels in their own lives is, is a challenge because I don't want to ask too much of them because I'm using their money to help my dream go forward. So I end up taking up more of a backseat approach. When you say a backseat approach, is that, do you feel like you want to take, you know, the, the shotgun or driver's seat approach or or do you want someone else to develop those timelines? What do you, well, what do you sense no, I, want someone else, I want someone else to take, take advantage of the knowledge that they have and without silos in place. I, I want them to share their knowledge. And if they know about project management and they know how to develop some sort of software to show how the company is going, going to go forward, use that knowledge because I don't have that knowledge. I don't have time to learn that, that stuff. But but my mind is asking, what are we doing next? And when are we going to do it? And how am I going to get to California? And who's going to pay for the airline ticket? And when I get to the airport, am I going to rent a car? Or you know, where am I going to stay? And you know, and who am I going to go visit first? And, and what time am I meeting with Space Station in the morning? Because we need to formulate the other two SKUs and, you know, and, and all that other stuff. So you, you kind of need like what the job, what I used to do in, in banking was executive assistant. You need to have an executive assistant who is empowered to delegate authority and responsibility and tasks to the CEO. So and great that, that works in synergy with them to say, I know you love Vietnamese food and I found five Vietnamese food restaurants in the, you know, in, in the circumference to make sure you get some food in your belly before you uh, have to necessarily go out and talk to people, you know, that kind of stuff. It's an intangible. Yeah. So I'm hearing two things in that one is the want to have an executive assistant who helps coordinate and delegate and orchestrate some of the, the intangible activities so that you can specialize and focus on, you know, bringing the brilliance that you bring. And I'm right. also hearing on, on a higher level, perhaps somebody, because you know, that it's, that's the executive assistant role, but I'm also hearing that there's like a, a business operations or strategy component of, okay, here's the quarterly goals or here are the key performance indicators or, you know, here's what we need to be doing uh, you know, this year that we're working towards as a business, which, you know, that's not going to be determined by an executive assistant, I don't think. I think no, no, it's not. No, I, I agree with you. But, uh, but they have to be able to uh, get that information in a format that, uh, that my mind can understand. So it takes, that takes time and energy from, I, I, I just see it as a strategic hire. In a, in a company uh, to be able to free up the individuals to do what they're able to do well and to the best of their ability and to make the rest of this, the minutia, the back office stuff easy 
and easy to, to comprehend and to understand. I, um, I never understood what I was doing in banking. I just did, you know, went a, a, about it in a, in a kind of, I wouldn't say a haphazard manner because none of it is haphazard, but, uh, but to really understand the nuances behind it, they needed a, a mind far more sophisticated than mine. Um, because I don't have a business sense in that manner. Uh, it just doesn't click for me. But flavor, that's something I can talk all day about. And, and combinations of, uh, of, of emotions and, and dreams that you've had when, when you think back of, of, thing, of meals that you've eaten and wines that you've drunk and cannabis that you've smoked, that's my strength. And that, that in its own way is, is that kind of intangible. But the, uh, the day-to-day operations of a business, I have uh, some problems with that. So, you know, you want to make sure that, uh, that the taxes are getting paid, that, uh, that everything is being done above board, that you have good legal representation, and, and that they have patience with me. Most important. Right. So... What I'm hearing then, it sounds like you really need like a COO or, or someone who's more of a CEO, who's more of a, you know, pure business operator, as opposed yeah. to you're more of the creative artist who creates the product. And it's funny because you started with like, we got this, 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 and that figured out. It was all about the product. But when it comes to the operation, it seems like that's where... Uh, some of the gaps are. Is that right? I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. So that, that's not easy. That's not easy at all. And it's a uh, it's it's been a challenge. I mean, I had I this isn't my first company. I owned a owned and founded or co-founded a business in Charleston, South Carolina, back in the eighties, named Old Charleston Pasta. I was you know I'm a trained chef, so I found myself. Uh, manufacturing fresh pasta with equipment that my aunt, that I was able to borrow from my dad and grandfather money to buy this beautiful uh, Italian pasta machine and the handmade dyes and really made something that they'd never seen before in Charleston. You know, it was mostly fried food at that time. It wasn't a uh, culinary, you know, destination that it is today. And, uh, we, I, I went gangbusters and I was selling to two dozen restaurants on a daily basis and uh, major supermarkets and even out of state. And then in uh, October, September, end of September of 2000, sorry, of uh, 1989, uh, we had Hurricane Hugo and I lost everything. So uh, lost everything except for the money that I owed my dad and grandfather that took me 20 years to pay back working in a bank. So as soul sucking as that is. So I've kind of, you know, when you work around finance people and, and everyone's an MBA, they're not so easy to get information out of them. You know, they, they, everything is pretty close to the vest and very proprietary and everything else is automated. And uh, you basically just have to be a monkey or, or anything that imitates a computer doesn't need a person. You don't need a person to push buttons and to make that happen. It was it was just so soul sucking to me, and I I just felt at the end that that anyone or anything, even the the, the chicken that pecks the the keys, could do the job better than I was doing it because they didn't need a person to to you know find a restaurant reservation or uh, or coach someone on what clothes to wear necessarily in a bank. And they just didn't have the use for a real executive assistant anymore. And that, that's gone by the wayside. So the, the whole idea of what I do or what I did was not necessarily be a, a business mind, but more of a personal mind. And so that part of the business, I've seen ex- incredibly successful and altruistic uh, CEOs who may not necessarily have that business sense because they're able to focus on the things that drive the company forward, but they have great guidance from the people that work with them. And I believe and trust in the people I'm working with to provide that, that focus and that function. But uh, as far as being an EA in a bank, 
that was no worse. I'm wondering, do you have the people on your team already or the person on oh, your yeah. team already oh, no. who can yeah, provide yeah. that business? Oh, oh we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, I wasn't complaining. And, and I wasn't saying that we're looking to hire someone. No, we, we have everyone in place. Everyone's in, in the, the place where they need to be in the company. And I'm not by any means saying that, uh, that I'm looking to place a COO or a CIO or a CFO. No, we're, that, that has nothing to do with me. My, my function is to do my job to the best of my ability and to make that happen. Uh, the incubator that I'm working with uh, has a corporate uh, governance set up already, and I'm happy to be a part of their corporate governance. And to be, you know, it's Klaus Apothecare is a part of another group. And I'm very happy that, that they're successful in all the different products that they're coming out with that they have out already, which are in some incredible things. So, but, it, you know, right now, my, the, my greatest goal is to get Klaus on the shelf. Got it. Awesome. So I'm hearing that um, you did the wise and prudent thing of not trying to do everything by yourself, but instead surrounding yourself by people with people who have complementary skill set and complementary knowledge so that you can divide and conquer. And so one plus one can be three or five or somewhere in between, maybe around 420. And, <laughs> and that you're, you're actually set up in a, in a good place where you've partnered with folks who have a track record of success in doing what you want to be doing and you're able to focus on your specialty which is creating craft beverages with a touch of cannabis right right and uh and if you want to be adventurous and you want to uh kind of break out of the boundaries of the boxes that are put up by society you can consult my book cannabis cocktails mocktails and tonics and you can take any given recipe and you can add a little alcohol to it and you can see how it makes you feel. I can personally tell you that the experience is otherworldly. I can tell you that it made me feel like I was in a warm embrace. I can tell you that it was not overwhelming. I can tell you that, uh, that of all the things that I've enjoyed in my life, this is the one that I wanna, tell, I wanna talk most about because it was an experience that it will always be with me, that it's a, a friendly thing, it's not overwhelming, and it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not something where you have to worry about necessarily like a bad trip or something. You know, we, I know that psychedelics are, are entering our, our communication and they're being uh, legalized in certain states around the country, but I think that must be taken with a, certainly with a, with a, with a grain of salt. Uh, or even sugar, if, if for that matter, because not every time you take mushrooms, it's going to be a good time. And not any time you take LSD, it's going to be a good time. But I will tell you that any time that I smoke cannabis, I don't have to worry about my brain taking it over and, and not wanting to look in the mirror because who knows what I'm going to see. I mean, I, I don't worry about that stuff. But I do worry about people haphazardly taking psychedelics and not knowing the power of their brain. And that's, you know, just a basic philosophy problem. Going forward from our conversation today, what's one step you can take towards lessening the degree of this challenge? One step I can take, well, when we have our, uh, we have a weekly call on, uh, on Thursdays and we talk about uh, where we're, you know, the things that are on our mind and the things that are concerning us and the things that we're working on. And, you know, I'll make it one of the uh, headings in the call that we're going to discuss timeline or we're gonna discuss a, you know, a project management and see, you know, how there can be certain accountabilities. So, my, so I can try to manage my time during the week. And because I'm writing for Forbes, I have to set aside time for that. And I also want to set aside time for Klaus. So they have to help me do that. And we need to do that by establishing this uh, project management software. Awesome. 
and there's there's a few that I, that I'm aware of that are fairly popular, like Asana and um, Trello is another one that people like. Um, and I would just say I, I would add to what you said. I think that's a great next step, and you know I would just encourage you based on my experiences. I, I know for me that if I'm working in an ambiguous environment, I will find every way to, to be lazy as possible. <laughs> and the, the thing that keeps me honest and on track is having some clear and well-defined goals because then I know exactly what the mission is and what the finish line looks like. And right then I can work backwards and figure out for myself, all right, what's the, what do I need to have happen this week, for example? Um, but for me, it's all about having that juicy, smart goal that I know, oh, okay, this is what, why I gotta show up today, you know, so I can get closer to that goal. Right. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's another whole issue. I mean, how do I get closer to that goal and not get overwhelmed in the other things that I have going on in my life? And that's, uh, that's especially profound in the era of COVID because so much of it is unknown. And that's what makes it an intangible as opposed to a tangible. Mm. Awesome. Well, I think um, one thing is certain and that's that we still have 24 hours in a day. Yes. And so, you know, fortunately, you're a very creative fellow. And I have no doubt that you can uh, whip up a way to, to schedule your time where you'll get things done in a good way. You know, both the tangibles and the intangibles. And, you know, I know for myself, it's important to structure into my schedule some unstructured time, you know, yep. where, where I know that, Hey, for, you know, all day Saturday, it's no work. It's the wild card day where you know, I could do whatever the hell I want. And I'm not thinking about the work because there's always Sunday and Monday. <laughs> um, so In two weeks, there's always Sunday and Monday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Warren, I want to thank you for taking the time to to chat with me today. I hope that I hope that this coaching piece was helpful for you and maybe gave you one step in the right direction, you know, and hopefully, you know, that that's a low bar for me. Really I prefer when I can be life-changing like you. Um but, you know, you can't always be life-changing every time. Um, no, but you're, you do something that's unique. And I, I knew about you several years ago before I became anything. And because I think what you did is you, were, you have a unique ability of bringing together minds that aren't quite the thinkers that everyone thinks that they are. And uh, that, that gave you a cachet. Because I worked in nightclubs in New York City in the 1980s. I worked at Danceteria, which you probably were, you know, weren't born yet. But, uh, but still, you know, New York was an interesting place for, for thinkers. And it's always been a place that, that people come to from all over the world to be part of salons. And, and yours, you know, High New York is definitely a salon. That is a high compliment. And I appreciate that because for me, one of the most beautiful things about cannabis that I've always loved is that it expands my consciousness and allows me to think differently. And, you know, the conversations that, I've had facilitated by cannabis have been some of the most interesting and engaging. And that's why, why I do this is because I love to talk to cannabis people and hear their stories and, and see how their brains work a little, because, you know, I, I just think, like you said, you know, I, I too am very curious about people and especially cannabis people, because I find that they tend to be the most fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Rum people are very similar except for they're usually too drunk by the time they realize that, that it was, there's something in rum that, uh, that reminds me of, uh, of, of the terpenes and cannabis. And it just, there's just some sort of effect that, that maybe it's, it's dreamy 
and it maybe it's when the the green you know the sun is setting and you see the green flash and you have a clean glass possibly with one cube of ice and there's that perfect dram of you know of, of good rum in it and i mean good rum by something that's not caramel colored or flavored but something that that exemplifies the, the place but there's also a joint in your hand and you're smoking that joint and drinking that drink and immediately you're in that place of nirvana where you can literally take your life and go to that next place. And that's what happened to me. I, you know, I dreamt all this. So that's my gift. I don't know. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, Warren, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I, again, I appreciate your time today and I'm excited for this launch, man. I'm next time I'm in California, I'm going to, I'm going to look, look it up and try to get my hands on some, some Klaus. Yes, it's, it's the, the first drink is called the Mesro cocktail and it's uh, named after uh, Louis Armstrong's weed dealer, Mez Mesro. Mez Mesro. Yep. 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 Cool. That's awesome. I like that little nod. Sweet. Yep. Well, Warren, thanks again, man. All the best and have a great rest of your day. I suspect you're going to be smiling most of the day, given that beautiful bud that you showed me earlier. And it's, it's definitely intellectual. I will, I will give you that. It's a conversational and intellectual high. Amazing. Awesome. Well, then you, you unsurprisingly chose the right pairing for today's, today's festivities. Wonderful. Even if I didn't shave. <laughs> That's awesome. That's fine. This isn't the bank. We don't have to shave here. That's right. <laughs> I don't want to shave for two days. Damn it, I'm not going to shave. You know, let me, let me tell you a quick story before we go, because I started my career in wealth management at, at a bank. And, you know, I was just out of college and I was living in L.A. It was a Friday. It must have been my second or third week at the bank. And I didn't shave that morning. The reason being it was Friday. I wanted to go out that night and, you know, I wanted to have some, some stubble so I wouldn't look so young. And, you know, the, my manager at the time pulls me and the other associate who, I guess he had the same, or the other analyst, I guess he had the same idea as me or just was feeling lazy or whatever, also didn't shave. And our manager, you know, brings us into an office, closes the door and just yells at us and chews us out. And he's like, do you know where the, what, like, what the hell you're doing? What do you think this is? If you don't want to be here, I'll have a hundred resumes on my desk tomorrow. Blah, 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 you know, just chewing us out for not being perfectly clean shaven. I know, I, I know exactly. I, I had that conversation given to me. Yeah. And so that was, that was, was probably, was you're aware, sorry. National Westminster for NatWest. I started as a CSR customer service agent. Gotcha. For me up. Yeah. And I deserved it because I looked like a slob. I didn't look like a banker. And you don't wear an Italian suit. You wear a Brooks Brothers suit. You wear a uniform. And if it means having a, sh a razor in your car, you make sure you get your clean shaven because you're the face of the bank, whether you like it or not. And it I survived based on my intellect. I didn't survive based on my uh, financial acumen. <laughs> nice. Well, I remember that was the first of many hints that I would not be staying at the bank for very long. 20 years to get it through this thick skull. And I, I, there was a time I had hair. It was like that long because that was what my brain was being indoctrinated as. It was like, you know, you don't want to stick out. You just look like everyone else. Yeah. yeah but that's not for us cannabis folk. Yeah. No, and, they, and they find it difficult to understand. That's why when I, when I left banking and, and you know, got into, you know, created, recreated myself, I wanted to do what I was comfortable with. And that was write about wine. I'd love to write about wine all the time. There's just no money in it. And, you know, writing about weed is an extension of my passion. So why wouldn't I do it? I mean, what else is there? I don't want to write about booze because that requires being drunk. And I just don't want to do that anymore. So maybe I'll be a sculptor next. I, I really appreciate the, the self-awareness and the, the courage that it must take to, 
to pursue your own path and not be stuck in the box. And it I think- cost, It cost me bankruptcy, it cost me divorce, it cost me uh, being disowned, it cost me a lot of things. And uh, don't let anyone think for, for a, a second that I haven't suffered. And, you know, I'm ostracized from my family. I have no contact with them. They want no contact with me. Uh, they're very, very, you know, famous people and they don't want the attention and I don't want to give it to them. Mm. Well, on that note, I just want to add, well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a bummer. Um, but I, I, I think it, that's, that's what makes me who I am. Right. Story. That's you know. I know you're sorry. You know what I am. I'm happy. I'm I'm happy that I that I'm alive. I'm happy that I didn't fail again. Um, I'm happy that I was able to do something that that brings people happiness. I was happy that I was able to be inspiring to others. What kind of gift is that? Mm. That's, yeah, that's quite the legacy. And and I just want to add. I think this is so important. What you brought up that. You know, for anyone who's considering being an entrepreneur, an artist, a free thinker, someone who operates outside the status quo, it will require sacrifice, no doubt, guaranteed. And, you know, you have to really be willing to pay the cost to be the boss, as the James Brown song goes, um, you know, because nothing is going to come easy you know the freedom that that perhaps you know i that i imagine warren has or that that i have and you know the 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 honesty with which we we each called ourselves the luckiest guy alive you know it doesn't come with just a silver bow on it you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice and hard work and getting knocked on your ass and getting back up. And so for anyone who might be listening or watching and thinking about, oh, yes, I would love to have a cannabis business. I would love to have a cannabis company. I would love to be a creator. You know, the question I always ask people in my coaching when they come to me with that is, well, what are you willing to give up? Right. What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to give up the comfort and security of, of the paycheck and the nine to five and the certainty? Are you willing to be alienated from, from people in your life that don't get it? Or are you willing to, to take the, the side job or whatever to, to buy yourself the time to be able to work on the passion? You know, get really honest with yourself and ask yourself, what are you willing to sacrifice? Because to achieve greatness in any domain will require a serious or significant sacrifice. And if you're not willing to pay the, the cost, then you'll never be the boss. So. Yeah, unless you've won the lottery. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> you forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then there, there's the other side of it. There's, there's a lot of really rich kids who uh, grew up to be rich adults. And uh, they want to work in weed. And I more power to you if you if you've inherited a bundle of money and you smoke weed, you owe it to yourself to buy a dispensary or get your own brand or do what you have to do and spend your money wisely. Because if that's what you want to do, do it. Don't let me stop you. I'll, I'm the first person to say you you're uh, the the greatest transfer transferal of wealth in the history of the United States is going on right now. And if you just inherited a fortune from your grandfather or from your father, you owe it to yourself to get into the weed business. I love that. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, this old joke that I like to repurpose a bit, which is the, you know, what's the quickest way to become a millionaire? You know, start with a start out as a billionaire and invest in the airline business, which is you know pretty true right now. But I, I think it's true for the cannabis business too, if, especially if you don't know much about cannabis or business. You know, invest in the industry, and you can go from a billionaire to a millionaire like this. Just like that, yeah. 
Um, I, you know what I, I like to in, I like to invest in I like to invest in uh, people who get it, and I like to invest in time, and I like to invest in if someone needs help. My biggest investment is <clears throat> to be able to to share advice, mm. and that's that, when we talk about intangibles and tangibles. That's something you can't pay. And uh, so if I can, as I said, if I can inspire, if I can help, as we say in bartending, raise the bar, then I'm successful. And that's, that means something to me. And I, you know, I don't always do it right. And I've had like seven or eight failures, but you know, I think that's who I'm meant to be is, is someone who helps others become successful. So I can look at them from afar and say, how'd they do it? In order to become successful, you have to have a definition of success. And I think a lot of people skip that foundational step because they assume, yeah, me being successful in the cannabis business means becoming the next cannabis billionaire or zillionaire or whatever it is. But that's just one definition of success. And in fact, I would argue for most people, especially the folks that I like to associate with and have on the show or, or highlight in my book or my writing, you know, largely by and large, those folks definition of success doesn't start and end with dollars and cents. It's all about, all about the intangibles, just like what you're saying. It's all about having that impact on the world and helping to bring a little more sanity, a little more justice, a little more connection, a little more equity, and all these other things that I believe to be the cannabis values and the cannabis culture, and bringing a little bit more of that into the world. That's success, in my opinion. You know, not, you know, yes, money is great, but you know, you can go make money in any industry. That's not unique or special or, you know, in my judgment, particularly exciting. Um, well, it's also the counterculture, and that's what's so exciting about it for me. I mean, it's it. it I I love the uh, the idea. You know, as much as things are legitimate and legal now, I love the idea that for most of the, the of my life, cannabis has been illegal. So that's uh, exciting. You know, that's interesting. That's the bad boy side of it that I that I like. And I'm attracted to it. And uh, that might be dangerous in its own way, but uh, I don't think anyone got to be successful in weed without uh, taking a certain amount of risk. And I think that's important to realize that not everything is going to be legal. Some things are extra legal, uh, you know, scanning the periphery. I think the second that I add alcohol to cannabis, it's really bad. Mm. It's really illegal there's no sort of sort of legal or somewhat legal adding alcohol to thc products is illegal i said it all yeah (laughs) awesome warren thank you again man this is fun and i'm looking forward to your launch i wish you nothing but success and just keep doing what you're doing and keep that big smile on your face and i have no doubt you will continue to uplift others and the community and have great impact. I hope I don't have any food in my teeth, do I? (laughs) Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.